Welcome to Newsworthy with Norisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. Welcome back to the show. Today we have Dr. Lee Camp. How are you, sir? I'm great, Luke. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. Now, uh, some of you might want to know, hey, where, where was the first time that uh, Luke and Lee met in person? And you know I, what the answer to that is? I bet everyone is wondering that. They're, they're dying for that information. Yes, yes. Do you know what it was? It was the Pepperdine Bible Lectures. Indeed it was. It's on, an outs- Malibu on the, yeah. on the deck overlooking the Pacific Ocean. You are, uh, you're in Nashville. You're at Lipscomb University. Correct. Have you ever thought, I'm not doing life well because I didn't get a job at Pepperdine and have that view every day from my office? Did you ever think that? Well, no, because, well, I mean, they did offer me a job, and I, I really thought it would be wonderful to go out there. But for family reasons and, and so forth, we decided not to go. So well, um, I, I was grateful to have had that opportunity because I think Pepperdine's a wonderful place, and I have many friends there whom I love and think very highly of. Okay, well, that's a nice answer. It's still the wrong answer. You should take the job. Uh, you are going to be at uh, Harbor uh, 2020, uh, which is entitled Called and Sent, The Vital Role of the Church. What are you going to be talking about when you're there? Well, I happen to be doing a two-evening session on this new book that I suspect we'll be talking about today. Okay, uh, so... I think Tuesday and Wednesday nights, nine. I think nine o'clock in the evening. Ooh. I'm going to be doing. Yeah, I've nine. done nine o'clock sessions. The, yeah. You're a real committed Christian if you go to a nine o'clock session <laughs> at Pepperdine. So uh, listen to the podcast. You're going to hear some great content. You're going to love the book, and you're going to want to hear more about it. So uh, join me uh, May fifth through eighth and Lee uh, on the beautiful campus of Pepperdine University for Harbor 2020, the Pepperdine Bible Lectures. You want to be there. So uh, check yes. the link in my show notes, and you can register there. All right. Lee, we did meet for the first time there, and yes. it, it, it has been, uh, dare I say, a scandal that you haven't been on the podcast <laughs> now, it, it, until I now. I think it's quite scandalous that I have not been on, the, on your podcast until now. It, it is. I've been racking my ba- brain trying to figure out why. Uh, the, yes. only, the only reason I can come up with is because of that event at Pepperdine, where you were doing a token show, which is your, uh, people will talk, get into that in a second, but your outstanding event. Uh, and you stole part of my Rain Wilson interview. We were both having Rain participate in our thing that evening, and I got Rain for like 35 minutes, I think. And then no, we had to rush over No, no, that's just not right. No, because I've never interviewed Rain yet. But he was at the token show, wasn't he? No, he was at an event that Mr. Walling does. Walling, yeah. Yes. Yeah. So that wasn't you? No. Okay. Uh-uh. All right, well, then I don't have any reason to harbor yeah. a, uh, a grudge nope. against you, then. You don't have any grudges that you can oh, legitimately man. hold against me. Okay, well, no. you've never invited me to, to sing at the Token Show, so that's maybe true. that's it. That's true, I've not. Have you, why, why do you think you haven't invited me to sing yet? Well, I guess I didn't know that you do sing. Yeah, I don't know if I do sing either, but I mean, <laughs> I, I feel like you still could have invited me. We could have figured this out together. <laughs> well, maybe, maybe one of these days. Yeah. I mean, now that I've been on the podcast... <laughs> Who knows what'll happen next? You got to reciprocate. You got. You, you uh, know what's weird is last week uh, on our podcast we had uh, Ellie Holcomb, and yeah. one of the endorsers for your book is her husband. Yes, both Ellie and Drew have been on Token Show as well. So. Wow, just just rubbing it in there. Yeah, um, just rubbing it. <laughs> but now, yes, Drew gave us a very nice endorsement. Yes, yeah, you, they're you, both very fine human beings. You, you got a lot of great endorsements. Uh, Drew's obviously was uh, was very nice and. Uh, I'm just saying, Ellie on the podcast last week uh, busted out a rap. Uh, oh. So I'm not saying you have to do that, but yeah. I'm saying that is something that people do and your friends do it. So just yes. consider that as something to bring up. Yes, I will, I will 
rack that up as one thing that I probably am never going to be able to pull off. Okay, well, fine. I don't know. Well, you, maybe, you, maybe, the, I don't know. The token thing, though, I mean, to... I mean, to be a legitimate scholar and then to kind of pull off that sort of music-y stuff, I mean, that's, like, you're, you're stretching there. I mean, that's impressive. It has, it has been a stretch, yes. Um, it's definitely one of those things I never imagined that I would be doing uh, as an academic, but it's been a privilege to get to do. And um, we've been privileged to work with lots of really talented people in Nashville. And um, I brag saying that we have one of Nashville's best house bands, but I, I actually, like, literally believe that we do. I mean... For example, one of the times that Drew was on the show, he told our manager, he said, please make sure you get my picture of singing on the stage of the Ryman with Brian Sutton, who's our guitar player, with Brian Sutton playing behind me. And so we're very wow. privileged to get to have people like that in our band and lots of wonderful people. So they, they you know, it's, like, it's one of those classic things of when you, you do something well when you surround yourself with people who do all the stuff a lot better than you do. And that's been the key to what we've done. Yeah, and obviously you're at the Ryman, which is a historic venue. Yeah, it's a wonderful place. Yeah, we're we're there once a year, and it's always wonderful. And uh, and we do we would love, we love for people to come uh, people come into Nashville. We do four shows a year or so, and you can find out more about the show at tokensshow.com. Get our show schedule and all the kind of stuff that we're up when, to. When's the next one? Uh, June. Four or whatever that first Thursday is of June, gotcha. we'll be doing one in, in conjunction with the Christian Scholars Conference here in Nashville. Oh, nice! And uh, yeah, we'll, we'll have our our guest, our interviewee that night will be Catherine Hayhoe, who's an evangelical Christian at Texas Tech and has become one of the most leading voices about climate science in the oh, United States. And uh, yeah, so it'll be a fascinating night. Have you had uh, Tom Wright? Not yet. Yeah, okay. we hope one of these days. Because you know, his with his love for strumming on the old acoustic, uh, yes. that you might be able to bring those two things together, and he would love it. Yeah, yeah. We I've already got planned some of the stuff that we'll do if we ever get to have him on the show. So really, can you give me a sneak peek? Because you know, I, you know, Tom's a friend of the show, and he's he's referred to me as a friend on the podcast. So oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Maybe well, I can be an intermediary between yeah. you and Tom. <laughs> well, I mean, I would imagine that we'll want to do some kind of Bob Dylan esque eschatological songs. Is what one thing that I imagine mm. with him. Yeah. Given how crucial eschatology is to Tom. Yeah, yeah. He... Eschatology, eschatological, esch, eschatology and Americana music has actually been a ongoing thread of the whole show through the decade that we've done it. Really? We're kind of, yeah, we're kind of always going back to eschatological American-esque stuff. You know, we don't do much contemporary Christian. We don't, that's not yeah. my genre that I like very much. But um, Americana that has these sorts of themes that resonate with the desire that, you know, a change is going to come or, um, mm -hmm. you know, the, all, all the sort of stuff that Dylan will say, you know, the blowing in the wind or whatever, whatever it may be that you've got this longing and anticipation for justice and longing and anticipation for things to be made right. It's so mm -hmm. beautiful in Americana music. And, uh, so yeah. that's a, a standard part of the show. Yeah, that makes sense. And again, this is another reason why I probably should be on. But uh, Taylor <laughs> Swift, fellow Nashville resident like yourself, yes, uh -huh. her uh, her documentary on Netflix is called Miss Americana. Yes, and uh, I don't know, I, I, like I'm I'm bragging here, and I'm sorry to do this, but Spotify recently told me that I'm one of the top two percent of Taylor Swift fans online. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I'm just saying, like, congratulations on that. I, it's a pretty big honor, and yeah. I don't, uh, I, I don't carry it lightly. It's a big deal, but yeah. Um, so I'm just Maybe. saying, there's there's some connection there. 
Yeah, you should put that on your Facebook page profile or something. I, I, I need to put it on social for sure. The yeah. So if I can get Taylor Swift to join me, will you guarantee me kind of like a feature in it? I tell you what, I guarantee you that if you can get Taylor Swift to join you, we'll, we'll give you, the two of you, a 30-minute segment on the Ryman Show. Okay, I mean, that's a pretty good deal. It's fair. Yeah. I think everyone would really appreciate it. Uh, yeah. So, Taylor, if you're listening, uh, shoot me an email. It's luke at luke-norsworthy, and we'll go from there. Um, <laughs> yeah, okay, well, that's... Okay, I, I feel like right now we've kind of uh, mended the the, uh, the tension between us about yeah. me not being on your show and you not being on mine until now. It's really wonderful to be able to mend tension that is not there. <laughs> <laughs> well, it seems like it's not there anymore because of what just happened. Yes, yeah. Ex- exactly. Right. Um, okay, so you have uh, a book, like I said, that has had um, uh, some amazing reviews. Like, the endorsements on your book are pretty substantial. And, like, how, you, you stumbled into some really good ones. You have Miroslav Volf, uh, Shane Claiborne, uh, Hauerwas. Uh, did you have to pay a lot of money to all these people? <laughs> or, or do you know where the skeletons are buried? <laughs> Um, well, so, I mean, some of that is, is another kind of result of token show stuff because we've gotten to meet some of these people and get to know some of those folks through that work. Um, but I, I will uh, – this is a sort of thing I was telling some of my students in the last month or so. Um, I Probably I, – I was very much in my early careers as an academic a purist in the sense that I thought you should be able to write great stuff and then everybody's going to read it. Yeah. And sometime, you know, maybe a decade ago or 15 years ago, I realized that, I mean, this is me being highly um, vulnerable and, and show my arrogance. But I started looking at stuff and I realized there are people who write crap, but people will read their books because they have a network and they get it out on their network. And I thought, you know, how, how is it that you can work harder and, I, and not just me, I see a lot of people who will work harder and they'll write better, but people don't read it. And I, and I realized, and I kind of made that an investigation of myself, and I realized that one of the things I had not invested in was developing relationships with the best people in my field. And so I started taking more seriously just trying to have friendships and relationships with people that are really good at what they do, not for the sake of using the relationship, but for the sake of these yep. are fun friendships and fun relationships. And uh, and then you get to have the benefits of having endorsements on books and things of that sort. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I think having a, a nice network does uh, does help with the old endorsement game because that's yeah. a super awkward part of book writing. And uh, to right. have a network, it is a very nice thing. And also having, you know, done hundreds of books on the podcast, uh, I am, I don't know how to say this nicely, the way in which time and chance happens to all books is something that I will never understand. And yeah. the book of Ecclesiastes says the race is not always to the, to the swift and the battle to the strong, but time and chance happen to them all. Uh, I think that's true of books too. And yeah, uh, I think so. Yeah. So um, anyway, you, you did well in this. The, the book is, um, is not only uh, well endorsed uh, just because people know you, but because the content of this is very timely and it, uh, it's a message that I think is going to get some strong pushback, but I think it's a much needed uh, conversation that we need to hear. And the reason it's going to push back is because you're, in some ways, like you're poking a bear, and the bear being <laughs> the idolatrous obsession that um, you know our political climate has become or created. And uh, so, are you ready for all that? Are you <laughs> are you ready for people to uh, to be really upset about this? 
Well, I, I know, I'm probably not. I mean, I, I guess I still have a certain level. Well, I guess I should answer that in two parts. One is that I've certainly had plenty of experiences of people being highly upset with me or highly upset about things I've written. And so at one level, my skin, my skin is much thicker than it was 20 years ago because I've been through times of that happening and so forth. Um, that being said, it always feels uncomfortable or um, I, I think academics still think that you anything should be judged based upon the merits of an argument rather than people making it personal mm -hmm. and but that oftentimes doesn't happen in our cultural context and so uh, when people make it personal it feels personal you know uh, but then the second thing I guess I would say about your question is that um, I as I say in the introductory introductory chapter all the material in this book I think is very basic straightforward uh, conservative orthodoxy, conservative not in terms of socio-liberal, cat socio-political categories that we use today, but conservative in the sense of the great tradition of the church. And it just turns out that when you really understand this stuff, it's really radical. Uh, and so I'm trying to put it in a way in the book, uh, in a very pointed, sometimes provocative sort of way, so that people will realize that the gospel is pretty amazing and what its claims about our life in the world. Yeah, you went to great lengths to not let it be, you know, this is anti-Trump or this is anti-liberals. It seems to be trying to avoid the tension of going to one side or the other with uh, politics. Um, so I assume that you are uh, deeply aware that that is going to be the issue that whoever is going to read this is going to think, well, you're just talking about that party and you're endorsing that one. Right. Why do you think that's the natural default way for people hearing a conversation on politics and naturally jump to partisan sides? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, I think that's because uh, we Christians and maybe maybe proponents of other significant ways of looking at the world or looking at life haven't done a very good job of creating third possibilities. And so when, you're, when your only way, your only lens of looking at sociopolitical questions is on a continuum from uh, liberal to conservative, the way we define those categories, and if, you, if you're a partisan at one end of that spectrum and you hear somebody say something different than you, then you necessarily assume, well, they must be a partisan on the other end of the spectrum. Yep, yep. And, and then so it's, it's trying to find a way of how you can uh, say something. So I, I think what you have to do is kind of be subversive in your speech so that you, you, you say something in such a way so that their natural default, if they're liberal to assume, well, you're just one of those Trumpites, yep. you say it in such a way so that they realize, oh, wait a second. No, that's not what he's saying. I don't know what he's saying yet, but that's not what he's saying. Yep. And then the same thing back the other way, you know, so that the, the right wing hears, hears you and they're, they're going to want to think you're a liberal, but you say it in such a way so that you upset their category so they, they can't so easily call you a liberal. Yeah, yeah. I, I was listening to a sermon for uh, this, uh, this guy that I kind of mentor, and he was doing the text about how Jesus says, you know, give to Caesar what's Caesar and give to God what's God. And uh, the point that he makes is th the crowd was amazed. That for us, it seems like, well, that makes sense. Like, you know, just give to God and give the country what they would. But somehow what Jesus did was an amazement because it kind of stepped out of the binary of left or right, you know, conservative, liberal, you know. Yeah. It, how do we create that sort of amazement of there, there is a different option and to get out of this, well, you know, either conservative or liberal when, when like that is the only way that we know how to, to filter it. 
Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> I think one of the things that um, I try to do, I try to do in the book and I also try to do like in teaching my classes is that if I assume, let's say, for example, that the most of the people in my immediate audience are, let's say, conservative, we'll put that in quotation marks, um, so that they're suspicious of um, they're suspicious of, of, of big government. Um, I, I'll start out by saying I, I very much agree with the right that we ought to be concerned about big government and the power of big government. And anybody who's not concerned about the NSA's uh, data installation in the desert of Utah and is not concerned about the stuff that Edward Snowden is saying is terribly naive because you ought to be concerned about the government having that kind of power and play that kind of deal and then raise the question, but I don't understand why we wouldn't also be concerned about the potential power of overreach of global corporations. And so it's like you can appreciate what a good conservative critique is saying about the potential problems of over federal overreach and bureaucratic overreach because that is a dangerous sort of power. But then say, but don't you want to be concerned about that over here in this area as well? Yeah. And so kind of acknowledge there's a legitimacy to the concern, but then try to broaden the borders of where that legitimate concern might be leveled as a critique of other sociopolitical realities. Yeah, it's not always uh, seen where someone can acknowledge the wisdom and the insight in uh, two parties, and what each of them bring to the table of the yeah. value of there's a value of conserving things that are really good, and there's a, a value in progressing on things that we can do better in, and that right. each each of them have a have a part in the conversation that we need to not just go, you know, if you're in that side you're an idiot, or you're this side you're you're the brilliant. So there's something that's yeah. that's great. Uh, one of the things that you do in the book is you you kind of take some terms that we would be familiar with, and you um, you redefine them in a sense. Um, one of the things you say is that, you know, Christianity is a politic, not a religion. And for us, we go, wait a minute, uh, that's not right. You know, Christianity is not supposed to be political. Uh, Give us a definition on on what you're trying to say with that when Christianity is a politic, not a religion. Yeah. So um, I I introduced that in the introduction, and I I, I talk about how, you know, we have one of the problems that we have these days is, uh, if you look, for example, at the Three temptations of Christ. Um, one of the temptations that Jesus rejects is uh, a sort of imperialism, and and so I'll say, you know, one of, one of the problems that we have today is the way in which we've commingled Christianity with nationalism and American imperialism mm-hmm. and the Make America Great Again, and how uh, the right wing temptation is highly dangerous to Christianity. And secondly, you have Jesus you know, being tempted to turn the stones into bread, which you could interpret as a sort of welfare temptation. And that some people want to reduce Christianity to a sort of welfare liberalism, where they want to reduce it to social activism. And that that's another sort of temptation on the left that we need to avoid. And so I'll say it's neither right nor left that we want. But then I'll say we also don't want to make it about religion. Because a lot of times what happens is that well, people will say, uh, in this sort of well-meaning, but I think naive way, they'll say, you know, I, I heard this at the last election season where people would say, you know, it doesn't really matter. God's got this in this sort of spiritual, spiritualistic sort of way. And I think that's crazy. You know, it's like, of course it matters. It, it mattered in the early 1930s that Hitler came to power in Germany. Um, it matters who is sitting in seats of power. These things matter. And so this sort of spiritualization to act as if history and politics don't matter, I think, is naive 
even if it's well intended. And so that's where I bring in that third piece of saying neither right nor left nor religious. We don't need a picture of Christianity that's this sort of privatized spirituality by which the world doesn't matter, by which history and politics don't matter. And so neither right nor left nor religious, and instead to see Christianity as a politic. And what I mean by a politic is just the classical definition of politics going back, say, to Greek, the Greek philosophers, that a politic is asking questions about how do you arrange the affairs of a community? What do, how, what do you do about offenses? What do you do about wealth? What do you do about marriage? What do you do about enemies? What do you do about reconciliation? And those are all precisely the things Jesus talks about over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. And, and moreover, he's seen as a political figure. He's king, and he's executed as king. And so recovering the way in which Christianity is a politic is a very much a real in-the-world politic. Recovering that provides us this different way that's off of that continuum between the American right and left. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think it was in um, uh, Destroyers of the Gods by, oh, what is his name? He's on this podcast. Um, uh, I forgot his name. Anyway, uh, one of the, his arguments is that the, the modern definition of religion would not have existed 2,000 years ago. The idea that like, uh, yeah. this is, quote-unquote, religious. And so w- we're using this word different than it would have been used 2,000 years ago. And so religion 2,000 years ago might have been exactly what you're describing as a politic. And Right, that's right. Yeah, so it, it's a way of life. It's an all-encompassing thing. And your definition of spirituality, as I was kind of understanding it, is the idea that spirituality is kind of like this, well, you know, God's just going to take care of things in the end, and, you know, Jesus is trying to get me to heaven when I die, and it's sort right. of like an escapist kind of thing? Is that a fair yeah. way to describe it? That, well, that's certainly one form of it, for sure, yeah. There, there are varieties of ways, and I don't go into any kind of detail about trying to describe uh, I'm, I'm, I'm more using that in, uh, in a kind of a sloppy way as to indicate there's this thing over here that we all can kind of identify particular instantiations of it, but it's all about saying uh, material, social, physical realities don't matter. What matters is the spirit. Yeah. So, so my, fir- my first proposition in the book is um, history is not one damn thing after another, which goes back to one of the kind of – it's a famous phrase – in historiography to say the way some people think about history is it's meaningless. It's just one damn thing after another. Whereas the Christian claim and the Jewish claim and the Muslim claim is that Christianity has a direction. And moreover, the American myth of progress also has a notion that history is going somewhere. Um, And, but so for all of those history is not one meaningless thing after another, it has a direction, but spirituality is one of these things that sometimes acts as if all oh, that stuff doesn't matter. It's just to get us out. Like you said, the, es- the escapist would be a good example of that yeah. to get off to heaven. When yeah. we die. Well, you do a good job of using some spicy words in there. You got damn, uh, whore bastardization. So I, I think you're doing great. I mean, those are some, <laughs> some good catch words that are going to do great on, on the internet. So well done on that. But what we're doing, we're having to redefine some basic terms to even have the conversation. And one of the things you talk about just a second ago is that the idea of uh, the end of times, which our friend Tom Wright would definitely want to talk about, our hope is different. And isn't that one of the things that, like you're saying in the book, that there is the the ways in which Judaism and Islam and Christianity part ways is right there? That's right. Yeah, yeah. Because because Christianity claims that uh, the end of the world, and end of the world meaning the hope, where history's headed, um, that Christianity claims that that has been inaugurated in the ministry, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Mm-hmm. Whereas um, 
uh, Jews typically and Muslims typically are going to say, no, that hasn't happened yet. Uh, that hasn't been inaugurated in the way Christians would claim. And so there is a significant historical difference there between those three. Yeah. And where our hope is, is ultimately one of the main divergent points about what a you know Christian politic or cr- Christian uh, witness would look like to the world. Because one of the things you talk about in the book is that both right and left likes to use the language of America being the hope of the world. And right. it's it's Texas's own Beto talking about that. It's you know our president right now, Trump talking about it. Many presidents have talked about America as the hope of the world. How is that problematic for Christians who talk about Jesus as our hope? Yeah, yeah. I'm, I mean, I do think, I, as you know well, there in your list, you know, with, there's a, lots of examples of this. And um, Abraham Lincoln talks about this during the Civil War. You know, America's last great hope of the earth, or Thomas Jefferson uses that same sort of language. So it's it's a very uh, common sort of trope in American history. And it gives America a sort of messianic role in history. And I think that Christians ought to be terribly concerned when they hear that sort of language. Um, and again, it's not a Republican or a Democrat thing. Both the Republicans and the Democrats have done this. Yeah through the years. Um, and so I think that we should realize that when people are, that, that hope is not a, I think we should see hope as a theological claim. And when people are using the hope language, uh, we should, we should test what it is that they are ascribing such authority or such messianic pretense to. Yeah. You say that you want the church to be constructive, not critical. Uh, not critical in the sense of uh, like a negative way, but you know, constructive. Like we're offering something better. And when when we hear this idea that you know America isn't the hope of the world, on one hand, I I just got the phone with a buddy of mine uh, who was from Rwanda. His family fled during the genocide to Congo, and family back in Rwanda now. And so for him to come to the states. It was a source of hope for him and many sure. of my friends yeah. who who have fled terrible situations and now live you know in the Austin area or, or other parts of the states. And uh, America's this hope of like this is a better life and America's helping in certain situations. H- how can we say America isn't the hope of the world without saying you know America doesn't do great things and that it's not this you know opportunity that other people in other places don't have? Right. Yeah. Well, in, in that chapter on hope, um, I talk about how clearly. There are ways to legitimately use the word hope in a sort of penultimate sense. You know, we we can say that uh, we have a hope that um, America might contribute to a durable peace in the Middle East, or we can say that we we can hope that America can can do criminal justice reform in such a way so that it improves upon the damages that are being done in our communities by those policies. Blah blah blah. Um, I shouldn't say blah 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 because it's a very important thing. But but um, yeah, we get et cetera. Yeah, et cetera, yeah. Um, and so, certainly, um, hope used in that sense is a perfectly legitimate way to use that term. Uh, what I'm trying to say, though, is that we often use that language haphazardly, and we use it in an ultimate sense. I mean, when you say America is the last great hope of the earth, I mean, that's a sort of ultimate claim about yeah. hope. Yeah. And, I'm, and I'm suggesting that is highly dangerous. And... Um, we should be on we should be on high alert about that. But to take a second thing coming out of what you said there, I try to make clear, especially in the latter part of the book, that in no way do I want these propositions that I'm working with 
to be construed as any sort of withdrawalist ethic. Yep. You know, it's it's not about acting as if none of that stuff matters, as I've already said. It's about saying, let's take things on the ground and ask, how can we make this better? And how can we do it better? And how could we at least take a step toward what we think the gospel would look like in this place, in this space? You know, so, somebody can do something that's truly good, or truly hopeful in moving in the right direction, and and not claim that Jesus is Lord, and we should be able to celebrate that. We should celebrate that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's a very concrete. Um, our our task is not to go with another one of the propositions. You know, the task of the church is not to be countercultural. It, it drives me batty when we say, "Well, Christians have to be countercultural." I was like, "No, no, you don't. That's 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 a that's an unthinking reflex to say something like that." Why is that unthinking? Because uh, culture is a is a word that that indicates the whole fabric or matrix of practices that make us humans in the context in which we find ourselves. So it's things like language, arts, music, uh, moral uh, moral norms, um, educational systems, and so forth and so on. And so to say, well, we're supposed to be countercultural. Like, well, why? Right? What, what does that mean? That you're not gonna you're not gonna like Taylor Swift? Uh, well, that, I'm being countercultural. I don't like Taylor Swift. Well, thought. no, yeah, perish the thought. Right? It's that instead we must be uh, discerning in our cultural engagement. Mm-hmm. And so there'll be some things in our given culture that we'll withdraw from and say, no, we just can't participate in that. And then there'll be some things that we can just all together celebrate um, and say this is something good and beautiful and great. And then there'll be other things that we'll say this could be good, but if it's going to be good, it needs to be transformed in this way. So let's see if we can work to transform this system or this cultural practice in a way that it could bear witness to something that's truly good. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you created the uh, that dichotomy of a uh, chaplain or a whore, uh, which if you're having to choose one of the two, chaplain is the right option. Uh, but in the way that you're describing the book, um, it, neither of those are really uh, sides of the fence that, that we want to be on as the church. Right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, help us see kind of like the, the middle ground of the danger of buying into the sort of, um, you know, religion of power and politics, uh, a partisan politics, and the um, uh, the tension of just becoming a chaplain of we're supporting. Help us to walk through that, that, that chasm. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, with the, uh, with the kind of chaplaincy critique I'm making there. My, my point, obviously, is not a, any sort of pedantic looking down my nose at hospital chaplains or something like that. Yeah. But instead, it's the notion that um, chaplaincy, as it oftentimes gets used in terms of nation-state, is someone who speaks some sort of word of spiritual comfort without really challenging what the powers have already decided they're going to do. So the powers are going to do what the powers are going to do, and the chaplain in this role comes alongside to speak some sort of word of forgiveness or some sort of word of spiritual comfort and let the state go on its way. So I tell the story, for example, about um, Father Corby. There's this famous painting that I first saw when I was a grad student at Notre Dame. Father Corby was one of the early presidents of Notre Dame. And then he went off to serve as a chaplain in the American Civil War. And before one of the great battles, 
uh, he called all the troops together and he gave them the last rites and, and, and pronounced absolution of their sins and then sent them into battle. And, and I use that as sort of a metaphor for the way Christianity has, has tried to serve the American experiment in that rather than saying things like, what does it look like truly to practice the gospel in loving our enemies? Or what does it look like to practice practicing hospitality to the stranger? Or what does it look like for baptism to be our primary pledge of allegiance over all other pledges of allegiance? The chaplain instead just says, well, we bless what the nation state is doing yep. and bring us some sort of spiritual blessing to it. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. I, I think one of the, the big th- the big things as a pastor that I that I want us to at least acknowledge is that there is a power and a principality at work in the the nation that we live in and that th- there is something that is calling us to pledge our allegiance to something other than the uh, allegiance that we swore in our baptism. And I, yeah. I, for me, the issue is that it, it, it never seems that overt. It just seems like this is just a normal part of life. And yeah. there's the famous uh, painting in uh, of Lincoln in uh, it's in DC, right? The I, I forgot to say the apostasis. How do you say that? Uh, the apotheosis. Yeah, there we of go. George Washington. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so it's this picture in which you have American forefathers that are seated there with uh, the God, like the the, right. the pantheon, and you go well. Yeah, they did some really great stuff, but there's a subtle statement that we're kind of elevating who built our nation to who created our existence. That's right. Yeah, and I talk about, I actually, I think I've got a picture of that in the book. Yeah, you do. Um, uh, and, yeah, that whole, and the word apotheosis means the divinization of, right? So, yeah. you're being seated among the gods, and so here is Washington being seated among the gods. And, if I remember the history correctly, you know, Wash, uh, Lincoln commissioned that painting during the Civil War. So the same Lincoln who's saying America's the last great hope of Earth sees the unity of the states as what's going to make human history come to its true end. And so if you've got that kind of language going on, it makes sense to put this sort of picture of Washington being seated among the gods and, in, in the midst of all that and stuff. And the cost of what, what he was going through is, what, 600,000 lives that were lost in the right. Civil War? Yeah, yeah. There has to be something that uh, enables that sort of sacrifice and cost to be spent. And Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that, um, you know, one... I mean, I don't, I don't, I wouldn't agree with all of the things that he says about all this stuff. But you know, I'm, I'm while we're recording this, I'm standing on what was David Lipscomb's farm, and one of the reasons that he found participation in the Civil War was so problematic was because uh, this is my language, but I think it's fair to what he was saying. One of the reasons he found that so problematic was because of the pledge of allegiance we make in baptism, mm-hmm. and he does have this line where he'll say something like. If you go off and you kill your northern brother in Christ, you've made a widow out of your northern sister in Christ. Um, and so he saw baptism as a commitment that trumped sectarian allegiances. Mm-hmm. We can have all these other allegiances, but they always must be subordinated to our allegiance to Christ. Yeah. yeah. There was another sort of, I've been looking for this other kind of quote. Um, of yourself? Uh, <laughs> no. <laughs> of a... <laughs> 
Uh, here's a sentence well, I wrote. It's really good. Here's, here's, yeah, this is a really great sentence I wrote. Yeah. <laughs> no, it was somebody else, but I'm sorry, I can't find him. But uh, but it, it was a quote of it by by uh, a president who said that the the bedrock of our politic is total allegiance to the United States of America. Mm-hmm. And you know, I think that there are a lot of Christians that were all worked up about a lot of stuff, but I didn't hear many Christians at all talk about that. And this was made in a very prominent speech. You know, it's like, oh my goodness. Did we not hear what the man just said? A total allegiance to the United States of America. And we, we, can, we can step back and say there are lots of wonderful things about the United States of America. And I think there are lots of wonderful things about the United States of America. But when somebody starts making those sorts of claims and we are not distressed by it, that indicates to me that we have not understood what Christianity is. Yep. And so I'm trying to provide resources to help us understand that. Yeah, yeah. And, and the book Scandalous Witness, I think, is a great re- resource that does that. And I think that resource... I'm not saying it's going to be most palatable for those of us from our tradition, which is the Churches of Christ, but it's something that founders like Lipscomb, like you're saying, obviously you're you know on uh, the campus of Lipscomb University that came from you know Lipscomb's farm, as you're saying, uh, it, there were strong ties to the Anabaptist movement, which from the beginning said we're not going to buy into this sort of uh, American myth in the way that others are doing. Right? Do you th- yeah. do you think our tradition kind of helps? Um, one of the good things about our tradition is that it, it helps us kind of see the evils of this. Uh, I certainly think there is lots of there are lots of roots in our tradition that if we uncover them or recover them, that can help us immensely. Yes, I think I'm afraid that a lot of them have been lost, and that um, you know, I, I, why do you think they've been lost? Six, well, I don't know how. Well, I'll just throw this out as my interpretation and, and, and noting I haven't thought really carefully about this, but I think that I would say that a lot of us realize that bound up with that capacity to critique um, nationalism and things of that sort was a sort of sectarianism and exclusivism that a lot of us don't want to have or be anymore. Mm-hmm. And so as we move, you know, so it's, it's kind of like we don't want to be that. And so the next easiest option for us to be in our tradition has been a sort of vanilla flavored American evangelicalism, yep. which has the nationalism lock, stock and barrel in many ways. Um, and so I think it takes a lot of work to kind of recover. How can we have this help the healthy parts of our tradition in a way that is healthy rather than sectarian? In the kind of sectarianism we don't want. Yeah, no, that that's uh, that's definitely fair. I uh, literally literally was just looking up uh, an hour hour and a half ago uh, some of the teaching that our church did four and a half years ago sermons that I preached on uh, why instrumental music was okay, and uh, it, it seemed like forever ago I was talking about that stuff because it's not there. And like you said, when people show up at our church, fifty percent of them have no Church of Christ tie to our church now since yeah. we're at out of that uh, instrumental service. And so it's neat to see us becoming more connected uh, w- with the wider Christian community, which I think ultimately that's kind of the last will and presbyter of the churches of Christ. Like that's, right, what, that's, that's right, where we're yeah. supposed to be. Um, but I, I think around us are a lot of traditions that, um, yeah, they don't, they don't value that. And I think one of the things that, you know, our, our flavor of Christianity can remind everyone is to say that Jesus is Lord means you're implicitly saying that everyone else isn't. And to say Jesus is Lord means Caesar isn't Lord. It also means America is not Lord. It's not the Democratic to Republican Party. P- 
power, right. money, all that is not Lord. And the reason I think this book can create some uh, a kerfuffle for you is because <laughs> the bear is in the room and it's quite large and it's quite powerful and most of us are not aware that it's there. And so I, th- yeah. I think we need that, these insights, this reminder of what the witness is supposed to be. Yeah. Yeah, I, I hope that it can serve um, in useful ways. And I really do think that um, in, in many ways, this book kind of comes out of a sense of sadness that American Christianity has become in some ways like a, uh, and I say this in the introduction, it's almost like it's, it's become a bad public joke. You know, because it, it people looking at it from on the leftish side can see all of the horrible ironies of people who say they uphold the, the way of Christ and it's so militaristic and nationalistic and they can see that's just that can't be and it becomes a joke. Mm-hmm. And then people can look back at the left and they can see the so called some some forms of uh, progressive Christianity can become this sort of shame based um, new sort of moralism that can be just as can be very as mean spirited as the stuff on the right, yep. and that's a joke too, you know. And so it's like, how can we find ways in which we engage the challenging issues before us that truly bring some sort of good news from the gospel? That's a different alternative, rather than getting caught up in these partisan strife. Uh, that's that's dumb. Us. Yeah, uh, you had some quotes from uh, I think it was Andrew Sullivan who talked about the the way that it's become somewhat comical uh, in, the, right. in the saddest sense of the word. Uh, I, I think there was a the line about uh, awokenness in there. Uh, yeah, yeah. Which I loved his line about the 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 great the new great awakening. Yeah, yeah. I mean that's um, yeah. We all need to hear that stuff. Well, um, okay. So uh, here's uh, here's uh, final question for you. You have uh, former students, friends, uh, who are preaching this upcoming fall uh, during, an ele- I don't know if you knew this, but there's an election this year. Did you know that? Uh, oh, is there yeah, really? Yeah, there's one this year. Um, wow, that's good That's good timing by this book coming yeah, out. Yeah, it's neat that you have a book that came out right around the uh, yeah. political cycle. That's crazy. Good huh. Good fortune for you. Um, yeah, it is. When, uh, when you have people who are saying, okay, I've, I've got to say something. I've got to be a uh, spokesman for the way of Jesus in this time. Uh, obviously, they're going to buy your book, which they'd be stupid not to. Um, but once they do, yes, they're, yes, they're going to go, okay, well, Lee, give me a direction. Where do I start? What's the first thing I say as I'm starting to to address and to represent this scandalous witness? Yeah. Um, I, I think it goes back to all of these claims of that, uh, these, these kind of basic propositions about the gospel. And the more we can... Uh, get people well-schooled in the basic storyline of the gospel. Uh, it will inform a new imagination by which we don't have to continue to be puppets to mindlessly repeat sloganism, uh, sloganeering from either right or left. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I really do think that it's, there's a power in the gospel to let us be uh, formed in such a way so that we can r- truly see the world in a different way and act in the world in a different way and not have to get caught up in it. It's tricky. It's hard. And by no means do I think that this will provide simple answers for all very complex questions that arise in these sorts of conversations. But I really do think that it really is possible 
to come up with a very different good news way of talking about these things and thinking about these things. That's good. That's good. Okay, since you'd like to do the intersection of uh, theology, culture, and music, uh, I know you had to have a soundtrack that you were listening to or some tracks that (laughs) you listened to the most during the writing of this book. Uh, That's so funny. Yeah. Do you know? Um, Yeah, I I have a... um, uh, I do do that. And and it's funny you say that because I've I've been... teaching some of my engineering ethics students, trying to get them to read Jacques Ellul, who was the great French sociologist and political theorist and so forth. He was brilliant. And, um, and I was listening to an interview of his, and he said that when he writes a book, uh, and he, I mean, he died in the 80s or 90s, but he said he would listen to the same album over and over and over again while he wrote any given book, and then he would go to another one. For me, it was a uh, Spotify list of classical music that I would listen to over and over and again. And I had, I had a couple of different tracks on that. When I got to some sort of moment where I was writing the most dramatic pieces, I would listen to that, that track over and over so, again. So classical music. Yeah. Yeah. yeah for me. I always, yeah. always write to, I think it's called, um, what is it? Post rock with, uh, like explosions in the sky or cigarettes, uh, th- those sort of bands. <laughs> uh, anything that doesn't have, uh, American words being spoken. Anything in English, I just I can't yeah. hear words because it messes me up because I th- that, yeah, yeah, can't come right. up with mine. I can e- yeah, I email and do busy work to kind of Americana yeah, stuff. Yeah, but, but when I'm writing, I need more classical stuff. Yeah, well, you're a man after my own heart. Um, the book uh, Scandalous Witness, uh, it's is it a, is it out now? When it is out okay. now, yes. People go get a copy of it. It's a it's a good one. Lee, I, I'm glad we uh, buried the hatchet. Glad we had me too. Had you uh, on too. the podcast, and uh, yeah. I'll be reaching out to Taylor, and we'll be working on a set list for our 30 minutes. I look. I look forward to that, uh, and we'll, we'll hold the spot for okay, you. Okay, that's so kind of you. <laughs> it's great to talk yes, to you. Yes, sir. Right, right on, man. Thanks for checking out Newsworthy with Norsworthy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now adjourned.